Morning. I like the sound of that. That was good. Uh, my name is Kyle. I serve as uh, one of the pastors here at Redeemer. If this is your first time here, I serve as a pastor of Community Life, and so it's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, I want to invite you guys to open up your Bibles to Matthew 5, uh, verse 7. If you don't have a Bible, if you're like, I would like a Bible, uh, we would love to give one to you. That would be our gift to you. You can find them in the foyer, or there's even some uh, underneath the chairs. So we're in Matthew 5, verse 7. Currently, we're going through the Beatitudes right now, and the Beatitudes uh, really are the inauguration point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, really one of his, his most well-known speeches and sermons. And for myself, uh, and I don't know about you, studying the Beatitudes has been uh, incredibly convicting. It's been a, a, a great spiritual surgery in my life, and I hope it has been uh, for yours as well. There are many surgeries, there are many tests that we can look at in Scripture uh, that can convict us of where we are in our walk with Christ. Is our faith genuine? Is our conversion authentic? Uh, but in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, I would say the Beatitudes is probably one of the most, uh, the deepest or best ways to really see how am I doing in Christ? Is my faith true? Is my conversion authentic? Uh, because when we look at the character traits that Jesus lays out in the Beatitudes, they are challenging. And they're, they're challenging because they're not just for super Christians. They're not for people who are in ministry. They're not for people who go overseas. They're not for uh, people who have been walking with God for so long a time. They are character qualities that are just to be displayed in every Christian's life. And so I want to look at Matthew 5, 7. We're going to look at what does it mean to be merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So I want to invite you, we're going to look at this, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, and we're going to look at this and see what God has to say about himself and about us. So Matthew 5, 7 is where we're at. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We saw earlier uh, last year that it is sharper than a two-edged sword, as you say in Hebrews. It divides us. It convicts us. But also, God, it assures us. It points us to you, Jesus. It, It comforts us that, God, you live inside of us, that you're working in us, even if we are discouraged. And so, God, would you continue uh, to do that through your word today? Holy Spirit, would you minister to the people in here? Would you minister to me as well? God, we know that uh, you are sovereign over all, that nothing is, is by accident. And so, God, if there are people in here who are hurting, who are suffering, who are economically, physically in distress, God, would you be the God of all comfort? And God, if there are people who are too comfortable here, who rely on their good works for a right standing before you, God, would you disrupt them and show them uh, that our righteousness is by faith in Christ. And so, God, would you continue to do that in our lives? Would you continue to um, help us look at your character? And then, Holy Spirit, would you make and create that character more in us as we are called uh, to resemble your Christ-like character in our lives? And so we ask all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. 
Well, I, I want to follow up with what, what I said. I believe the Beatitudes are some of the most penetrating tests for our faith. Um, because if we look at, our, look at them honestly, they're like a mirror. They show us where we're at. Not only is our faith genuine, but also if it's healthy. Where are we at? Where are we at uh, in being poor in spirit? Where are we at in being merciful? Where are we at in being meek? And so if, if I read the Beatitudes and I am humbled by them, I see I'm not where I would like to be or I'm not where God calls me to be, then you have a great uh, call for encouragement. There's a reason for encouragement that I can look to Jesus and pray, God, would you continue to make me more merciful? And that, God, I'm trusting in Jesus for your right standing and that, God, I know through the sanctification process that you will continue to do that in my life. That's a great hope. If you are there. But if, if you look at these Beatitudes and you read them and you say, this is a bunch of hogwash. This is, this, he's not being really serious here. I, I don't believe that it's, it's really what he says at face value. Then we have something to really think about. And you could potentially be in grave danger. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. When, I prepare, when we prepare sermons, or at least when I prepare a sermon, uh, commentary, commentaries are very helpful. And I would say Martin Lloyd-Jones has, has written a great commentary on what the Sermon on the Mount is. And he has a great quote. I don't have it up here on the slide, but I felt compelled to just read this because it, is, it has been really helpful as I've studied this passage. But listen to what he says about the Beatitudes. He says, they really tell us everything about the Christian profession. If I dislike the kind of thing, if I am impatient with it, if I well, instead to be talking about communism, if I dislike the personal analysis, probing, and testing, it simply means that my position is entirely contrary to the New Testament man. But if I feel, on the other hand, that though these things do search and hurt me, nevertheless they are essential and good for me, if I feel it is good for me to be humbled, and that it is a good thing for me to be held face-to-face with this mirror, the Beatitudes, which not only show me what I am, but what I am in light of God's pattern for the Christian man, then I have the right to be hopeful about my state and condition. Listen to this. He says, The man who is truly Christian, as we have already seen, never objects to being humbled. And when I read that, it was, it was humbling. And so I just want to encourage us that when we look at the Beatitudes, if you are humbled like myself, take great heart and look to Jesus, who will continue to work and to do these things in your life. Do not go to despair, but look at Jesus. And so I want to look at what, if we're going to look at this passage, we need to have an operating definition of what Jesus means by mercy. What does it mean to be biblically merciful? And I want to kind of delineate or, or kind of make some distinctions upon what does he mean by grace? What is, what is the difference between grace and mercy? Okay? The proper biblical definition of grace would be God's favor to the undeserving. That God, we're saved by grace, right? We are saved by grace through faith, faith as Ephesians tells us. Paul tells us you'll see that all throughout the Old and the New Testament, we're saved by grace. But what is mercy? Mercy is what God does to the miserable, Mercy is what God does to people who are in misery. And so a proper synonym to mercy is active compassion. It's not just a feeling. It's not just a thought. It's, it is a, an active alleviation to someone who is in a miserable state. Jordan and I, we, we've talked about grace when, when we parent. Um, if, our parent if our children uh, need a, um, a discipline, Right, whether that be a spanking or whether that be a timeout, whatever it may be, uh, if we want to give them grace, we will get down on their level and we will say, you deserve whatever it may be, a spanking or a timeout, 
but we are going to give you grace. And you're not going to get a spanking, but you are going to get Oreos, right? <laughs> and it is a travesty when the Oreos run out, as many of you know. Um, but we, we, we get down on the level and we say, this is grace. It's God's favor to those who don't deserve it. But mercy is what God does to those who are in a miserable condition. And so if we're going to consider ourselves biblically merciful, it doesn't mean that we look at someone who is in misery and we have a feeling, we feel bad for them, we may feel like we, we, we could do something, but we just don't have the time. That, that is not a working biblical definition of mercy. You know, I, I can't forgive her. I cannot remember who said the quote, but... Um, There's a quote that says, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. What do I mean by that? Uh, There are many of us who feel sorry for others. We desire to do something about their suffering, but it is only intention. It's never action. And so why I say that is because Jesus' definition of mercy is always followed by action. Because in the Bible, belief is never divorced from attitude or action. So one commentator, he says this, it kind of, when we look at mercy, it goes, it kind of, forks in two different directions. It forks in two ways. An act of compassion. In other words, we do something about it. But there's also a sense of pardon and forgiveness to those who have wronged us. Now, why do I say that? Do I just make that up? No, because I believe that when Jesus uses the word compassion or uses mercy, there is often either an alleviation of someone who is in distress, but there's also an element where he uses it where forgiveness is there where we forgive those. And so, do you want to know what type of person I approve of? God says, it's the, it is the merciful person. It is the person who is blessed that is merciful. And so, um, it would be good for me to emphasize one thing, though. If you read this verse, it says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, let me emphasize something. What the Bible is not saying is that our ability to receive mercy hinges in our, our ability to give it, okay? It would be good for me to emphasize that because a Christian is, something, is someone new before he does something new. In other words, there's an inward change before there is an outward change. Mercy is, not something, is also not something that someone is just born with. It's not a disposition. It's, I, I was, I'm born just a little bit more merciful than this person. That's not true because this is something that, some, that God does in our life by his Holy Spirit. The Bible is not saying, try to act merciful, right? Try to be more merciful in your Christian affairs. No, the Bible puts emphasis on being rather or primarily first before doing. So a Christian is something new before he does something new. In other words, before we act Christian, we must first be Christian. And why do I say that? Many people have confused this beatitude for thinking exactly what I said, that If I show mercy, then I'll get it. But that's backwards. That's not the gospel. In fact, the gospel says that God looked upon us in our wretched state and had mercy on us. Right? Religion says, I am going to do, I'm going to live a marginally good life, a semi-good life. I'm going to give that record and I'm going to give it to God and maybe he will approve of me. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is, no, I cannot live that life. However, I look to Jesus who lived the perfect life and I receive his record that he had mercy on me first before I give mercy. If we confuse this, it is a great danger. Let me show you how Paul roots this. Paul appeals to the Romans, and he appeals to them to be transformed by the renewal of their mind. But 
But why? How does he appeal to them? He appeals to them based on what? The mercy of God. Romans 12.1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Mercy precedes our ability. Titus 3, 4 through 7, he says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to what? His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Friends, mercy is something that God does in our life by trusting in his work, being justified by the, by the gospel, by being justified by God's work, and that he creates in us a merciful heart. And the reason why I say that is because mercy is actually not a natural disposition in us, where some people are born more merciful than others. No, this is a supernatural character quality that God does in our life as a result of being born again. Um, what is natural for us primarily outside of Christ is to look at human need, whether it be emotional, economic, physical, maybe feel some sense of pity, but look the other way. That is natural outside of Christ. That is the natural bent. It's also the natural bent to hold grudges, to look at people who have wronged us and to say, there is no way I'm gonna forgive that person. That coworker who wronged me, that family member who wronged me, that is natural for us to look at someone and harbor grudges. In fact, Paul makes this clear too. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to our various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It may not be outward. We may not say, I hate you verbally. But in our heart, it is natural, outside of the grace of Jesus working in our life, to harbor grudges, to put people on ice, to put people in the doghouse. It's natural for us. In, in fact, let me just show you. Just this last week, there was an article that came out about uh, Meghan Merkel. Or is it Markle? What is it about this obsession with the royal family? I'll be honest with you. I have no idea. Can I just go, get off, the, go off the script a little bit? Um, now, the crown is great. We know that. That is phenomenal. Can I get more in it? Um, but I have to ask my wife, now, who is the queen? Is that Diane? You know? Uh, now, what's the queen do? I just, I don't get it. But um, it's just because I'm pure, I'm a pure American, and we beat them 250 years ago. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, an article just came out this past week, and if you know uh, Harry and Meghan, they don't, they don't, they're not, they do not work for the royal family. They decided to kind of um, not take that role, and they live actually in California. And there's, there was an article that came out about an interview to someone in Meghan's extended family who was bitter at Meghan because they perceived her to think that she's better than the other side of the family. And so the anonymous source says this. She says, I'm not chasing after someone that doesn't want to talk to me. I have my own family, and we couldn't be happier sharing the love that we have. So in other words, I couldn't care less. Now, I may be 
exaggerating here a little bit, but I do think that, that outside of Christ, it is natural for us to say, I couldn't care less. You hurt me, I'm gonna put you on ice. Or I'm not gonna talk to you, I don't want to talk to you, or I'm gonna get back at you worse than you the way you hurt me. That is natural. But when the loving kindness of Jesus, as Titus says, it comes into our life, it comes into our hearts, and creates a sense of mercy because we have been shown great and immense mercy ourselves through Christ who loved us and died for us. And so I believe that this verse gives us two tests that we can ask ourselves. Two tests. One is a compassion to those who are in distress or who are in misery, and not just do we feel bad, but an act of compassion. And then the second test is do we forgive? Are we forgiving? Number one, a compassion. Our showing mercy suggests that we have received it. If we have no mercy on those who are physically or economically in distress, then I just don't think that there's any other way to say it, but then we have room and ample reason to check our hearts whether we are in Christ or not. It's just that hard, and it's also just that simple. It's a hard saying, right? Um, I'm not saying that everyone sell everything that they have and needs to be a missionary to people in Africa. That, that's, that's, not, that's a specific call, and we praise God for those calls. But the Beatitudes are written to every single Christian. So it's not special Christians or super Christians. It's every Christian, that every Christian, is, it is incumbent upon us to look at those who are suffering and in need and not just merely feel, but to do something about it, however God would lead you. Take, for instance, I want to show this. I want to root this in the Good Samaritan story. If you're familiar with the Good Samaritan story, it's probably one of Jesus' first or second most popular parables. A lawyer comes to him and says, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, What's the, what does it say in the law? How do you read it? And he says, you love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And he says, you read right, do it. And then the lawyer, now there are a lot of lawyer jokes you can make here. But he says, but who's my neighbor? And what does Jesus do? He says the parable to teach him who is his neighbor, which there are a lot of theological implications. But the Good Samaritan story, in a nutshell, goes like this. A priest walks by a man who was beaten and left for dead on the side of the road, looks at him, does nothing. A Levite. Now, let me back up because the G- Jesus says that the man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. In other words, he's Jewish. So there's some significant theological implications that Jesus is trying to show here. But a priest walks by, does nothing. A Levite walks by and does nothing. But then a Samaritan who sees him on the side of the road, the enemy, the Samaritans, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. A Samaritan looks at him, helps him, puts oil and wine on his, on his wounds, puts him on an animal, takes him to an inn, heal, tries to help him, feeds him, and tells the innkeeper, heal this man, and whatever you pay more, when I get back, I'll pay you back. And then Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And then the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus is trying to show him how you obey the law, how you obey the Shema in Deuteronomy. And so, therefore, we can discern that those who are spiritually alive, who are following Jesus, are compassionate and act to those who are in miserable positions, who are struggling economically, who struggle physically. And so, if we remain passive to human need all around us, physically and economically, 
then the character quality of the kingdom is not in us. 1 John 3.17 says this. It's, it's written all over the Old Testament, and it's all over the New Testament, how believers will look at needs around them and meet them. In fact, it was the ancient Christians in, Romans, in Roman culture at the, at the dawn of the church who were those who would go to those who were suffering, who had disease, who would take unwanted babies on the side of the road. This has been the MO for Christians in the church for as long as it has been around. 1 John 3.17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, here's the action part. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. This is, this is convicting. I don't know about you, but this, is, this was very convicting for me. And so if you're looking, here's a subtle, a subtle plug, as, as Courtney mentioned it, and as, uh, if you are interested to reach out to Jesse, but if you're looking, how, how can I serve in ways? Uh, talk to Jesse about the care clinic. This is a great opportunity for us to serve our neighbors. And lastly, the second test, forgiveness. Forgiveness, and it, it, it may be one of the most challenging when God's love comes into our heart, it causes us to forgive because we have been forgiven, not a little, but much. We have been forgiven much. If you remember in Matthew 18, uh, Peter comes to him and asks, this is Peter, asks, how many times should we forgive? And Jesus says, seven, not seven times seven, but 70 times seven. In other words, an unlimited amount. And then he tells a parable of the unforgiving servant. A king wants to square debts with his servants. And one servant owed uh, 10,000 denarii, which was a crazy amount of money in our day. And the king comes, uh, the, the servant comes to him, owes it, and says, God, he says, King, please be merciful to, him, to me. Ask for forgiveness. Ask for mercy. And the king, uh, out of his forgiving heart, gives it. But then that same servant goes and sees one of another person who owed him money, only 2,000 denarii, and says, pay up, you wicked servant. And he says, I don't have it. And that guy throws him in jail. But then the other servants get wind, and they report it to the king. And he comes before the king, and he says, you wicked servants. Listen to what he says. And in anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to Peter. He's talking to Jewish people. These were people who were in temple. These were people who were accustomed to the Bible. They were accustomed to the law. They were people who were upstanding people, most likely. But yet they held grudges. They had a vice grip on that relative that wronged me, that boss that wronged me, the parent or child that has hurt us, the spouse that has continued to hurt us. I'm not talking about, now I want to be responsible here because I'm not talking about someone who is, has been hurt deeply, in some ways heinously, and is working toward forgiveness. Who understands that God calls us to forgive and who is emotionally wrestling with the Lord to get to that spot. That's not who the scripture is written to. It's written to the person, the text is written to the person who refuses to forgive. Who says, there is no way I will ever forgive that person who nourishes, feeds, stews on grudges. 
You know, the world, the world would say, you can't forgive that person. You'll be taken advantage of. They'll eat you alive. They'll keep doing it. But in the church, the Bible says, if you don't forgive, you will be eaten alive. Sin, that sin, bitterness, grudge holding has a way of rotting our souls. And so the text is written to someone who refuses to forgive. You see how challenging the Beatitudes are. Man, uh, in a world that has, we can so easily, all around us, claim a, a Christianity because we go to church or because we know Christian lingo or because we can say the right thing, but then walk out those doors and see needs all around us and not do anything about it and have grudges in our heart towards people that God is calling us to forgive. You see how the, Jesus points us to a much harder test, a much more penetrating test? Now, I know some of us, I want to be sensitive because some of us have been sinned against very grievously. And we have been wronged in horrible ways. And it will take a process, it will take a long time to ever get to a position where we can forgive that person for what they've done to us. But it's only in the gospel that we have that power and the ability to forgive. And in fact, we must forgive for our own soul's sake. And so friends, I want to ask us, is our faith healthy? Are there grudges? Are there, are, <laughs> Jerry, Jerry Bridges had a book one of the first books that I ever read. It was called Respectable Sins. And what he's trying to communicate is that there are respectable sins, respectable sins that we think are fine, that they are just okay, such as grudge holding or not forgiving. But the reality is they're not respectable. God is calling us to forgive. Whether that be towards a family member, a friend, a coworker. How do we do this? We have to look at Jesus who on the cross, as he was dying, being crucified when he was innocent, looked at people who were killing him and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I want to end with this. I want to end with a story by Corey Tinboom. Corey Tinboom, I don't know if you're familiar, any of you are familiar with her, but she was a missionary, uh, excuse me, she wasn't a missionary, she was a minister during the time of World War II. And her story, she wrote a book called The Hiding Place, but her story is that she was a Christian during World War II, and her and her sister Betsy would take in, she, they took up to 800 Jewish people to keep them alive. Well, she took so many in that she got caught by the Gestapo, and she was sent to Ravensbrück Prison, or concentration camp. And she witnessed unspeakable horrors, and her sister Betsy starved to death in front of her. And as the World War II, as the, as the war ended, she was released, and she had a ministry. And at one time in Holland, she is speaking, and she talks about those in Christ can rest assured that their sins are forgiven, for God has hurled them to the deepest part of the sea. And that her talk was over, and people started to come up to talk to her and thank her for her message. But then she sees a person that she recognizes, and it's the guard from Ravensbrück Prison. And she sees him walking towards her. And she says that my, my, my body started to freeze. Here I was, I, saw, I talked so glibly of forgiveness, but here was my, my moment and I couldn't do it. And he's walking towards her and towards her. And eventually he comes up to her and he says, uh, great message, Frau Lin. I'm glad that you mentioned that our sins are forgiven if we are in Christ. 
and hurled to the bottom of the sea. And she says, I who've spoken so glibly of forgiveness fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand that was reached out. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? And then he says, you had mentioned Ravensbrook Prison. I was a guard there. And he says, but since that time, I've become a Christian. And I am trusting that God has forgiven me for all of the horrible and cruel things that I've done to people. And so I know that God has forgiven me, but I want to hear it from your mouth, Frau Lin. And he sticks out his hand. Will you forgive me? And listen to, what she, listen to how she writes. She's a great writer. I knew, I, ha, I, I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were also able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there, the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. Where does Corey, where do you, where do I, where do we get the power to forgive? Where do we see, how do we view people with gospel lenses, with people who are made in, in the image of God, who have great significant needs, who we are called to help, however God would call us? We look, who, we look to Jesus. We looked at the merciful one who was truly merciful to people who hated him and who died for you. Scripture calls us, be merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I want to leave you with Matthew 9, 13. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you that you have chosen vessels of wrath and made them vessels of mercy. Lord, forgive us for receiving mercy, but not always being willing to give it back. Forgive us for having blind eyes at the significant needs around us and feeling right to nurse grudges and bitterness. Holy Spirit, convict us, help us. Assure us of our presence in our, your presence in our life as well. God, break our hearts for what breaks yours. And help us to be like the Samaritan who did, did not just look, but who acted, who had compassion. And the opposite of the wicked servant, for the God, we would perceive that we have been forgiven so much in Christ. God, this can only happen with your help and your work. And so minister to us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.